Standby playback. And now, live. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. We have been doing work to promote voter participation for students. And, for example, we have, um, under the Federal Work Study Program, now allows students to get paid through Federal Work Study to register people um, and to be nonpartisan poll workers. As we know, this is important for a number of reasons. One, to engage our young leaders in this process and, and activate them in terms of their ability to to strengthen our communities our communities if you didn't recognize that crazy voice that is vice president kamala harris and i want you to understand why this is so terribly significant that your tax money is being put out to pay for college kids to go up and sign up other people probably presumably a lot of them will be college kids to sign them up to vote and you might say well Isn't almost everybody in the United States signed up to vote already? With Motor Voter, virtually anybody who gets an ID card, virtually anybody who gets a driver's license is already signed up to vote. I mean, there's automatic voter registration in many states in America. Why do we have to pay college kids to go out and sign people up to vote? Let me suggest there's an agenda at work, and it shouldn't be your tax dollars that are paying for it. What Kamala Harris is saying there is we're going to go out and hire college kids. Well, at most colleges in the United States, there might be a few exceptions, and I could name some of them, but in most colleges, the students are going to be very, very politically liberal. Now, the people they encounter, their friends, their neighbors, uh, their fellow students, are likely to be very liberal as well. So if the federal government under Joe Biden says, we're going to hand out cash, to young men and women. It's going to come from the Biden administration, so they're going to be very grateful to us at election time. And then we're going to have them sign up people to vote who are likely to be similarly liberal. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if President Donald Trump had said, I'm going to send out money to a bunch of conservative groups or maybe even send it out to some the very few conservative colleges that exist in America? We're going to fund the college Republicans to sign people up to vote. Now, of course, any kind of effort like that is going to get both conservative students and liberal students. But, you know, if you're depending on the group you're sending the money to, you know that you're going to be biased one direction or the other. If the Biden administration hands out money to liberal groups on college campuses that are filled with liberal faculty and, for the most part, liberal students and say, sign up everybody you know to vote, you're going to increase the number of voters potentially who are able to help Joe Biden, sadly, across the finish line. That's what they're doing. So I'm going to put the question to you this way. Our ex-poll question for this Wednesday, should the federal government pay college students to register people to vote? The Daily Mail reported it this way. Vice President Kamala Harris met with voting rights leaders on Tuesday, outlining her strategy for the government to start paying students to register people to vote. 
She met with voting rights activists in the Indian Treaty Room of the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, that's the one right next to the White House, on Tuesday to talk about strategies to boost voting around the country. We've been doing the hard work to promote voter participation with students. Now, as I suggested already, some of this ought to sound a little odd anyway. Because if most Americans are automatically registered to vote, and the only uh, choice you have is whether to opt out of being automatically registered when you get a driver's license or an identity card, uh, an ID card, if you've decided you don't want to learn how to drive, and stunningly, a number of 20-somethings don't know how to drive a car. I always consider that one of the key skills you need when you go out and work at a job is the ability to drive to work. And in some cases these days with Uber and Lyft and Grubhub and the rest to be able to drive as part of your work. But if you've already got almost everybody signed up, what exactly are you doing? You are flushing money out to groups that, you know, have a liberal bent. These are the same people who would have you believe that. There are people out there without driver's licenses or people without ID cards and no way to get them. And we have to convince them to register to vote. This is a get out the vote for Democrats program, and it's being paid for with your tax dollars. So answer the question any way you like. I've answered no. Should the federal government pay college students to register other people to vote? My answer to that is absolutely not. You can find the poll on X at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. And it's brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined a long time ago. You can join, too, very easily. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Let me grab a call, and then I've got a few other things to tell you about. Uh, there's crazy stuff going on right now. Uh, you've got Mitch McConnell stepping down as the longest-running and too long-running, as far as I'm concerned, Senate leader in American history, maintained his power, uh, and, and now is going to be out of power, I think, because he realizes uh, Donald Trump's going to be elected president. He'll take office in January, and at that point, Mitch McConnell is done. And chances are, one way or the other, he was going to get bounced out of that seat, whether he went under his own power or whether he just froze up in front of cameras, as he keeps on doing lately. Uh, he was on his way out anyway. He's decided to find his own exit door, and I don't have a problem with that. A shout-out to our friends in Florence, Alabama, who listen to Great Talk Radio on WBCF. That's AM 1240 in Florence, and you can find my show there as well. And if you want to jump into what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, you go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's go first to Ron. Hey, Ron, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? the uh, country is on my mind. I don't see any way out of this, Lars. Let me bounce this off you. Okay. Um, and by the way, that was our wonderful border czar that can't find the border that you were talking about there. No kidding. But besides that point, uh, you know what perturbs me here? The Democrat Party seems to be only in office to steal everybody's money. Let's just face it. That's all they've been showing us for the last three to four years. Pretty Before accurate. Showing it longer. But I, I, I you know, I need you to explain to me how you think voting for Republicans is going to change anything, because it, the Republican Party 
sits back and does nothing, the Democrat gets, you know, get, takes over the power and they spend all our money and then it goes back the other way. We always fill up. That's the, the unit part. The That's the unit party, Ron. And I agree with you. The Republican Party and its members in Congress have been a gigantic disappointment all day long. They have uh, they have absolutely failed us in major ways. So who attacks the unit party? Donald Trump. Who goes after the deep state bureaucracy that held has held back any kind of conservative change in our government, any kind of living within your means or any of those ideas? The deep state bureaucracy sabotages it. And you're right. There are a lot of people on Capitol Hill are there are there merely to enrich themselves. Mitch McConnell is going to go out of office a very, very wealthy guy. And the only guy who's promising to go after it and did go after it in his first term is Donald John Trump. And if Joe Biden or some other Democrat gets in there, the same old uniparty is going to be there forever. You got the Lars Larson Show. the work so you don't have to bringing the political heat he's Lars Larson welcome back to the program it's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday always glad to get to your phone calls I want to warn you about something the Biden EPA wants to impose new emissions rules that could cost millions of people their jobs and their power when it comes to emergencies is the Supreme Court the last hope to try to stop that outreach. Uh, the guy who knows all about that is Jim Burling, a VP at Pacific Legal Foundation. Jim, welcome back. Hey, nice to be with you, Lars. Would you mind describing for my audience how it is these rules and regulations are going to do so much damage? And I, I guess I want to emphasize to people when the EPA takes these actions, that means your elected representatives did not act on this, which means you don't really have a say in what these agencies do because the agencies have so much power these days. And they're most for the most part, they're lifer federal employees and bureaucrats. Uh, and that and that when new administrations come in or out, very little changes at these agencies and they know that they're almost unfireable. Uh, maybe even uh, they are unfireable, but I know the rules make it very difficult to get rid of people, even when they're doing outrageous things. How could the Supreme Court change this? And please outline why this is such a threat, both to our power uh, supply and to lots and lots of jobs. And I think it's even worse than you described, Lars. So this case began in 2015 when the EPA issued new ozone standards for the ground level ozone, the sort of emissions that cars, trucks, plants, gas plants, all these things are admitted. And when a new standard is put in place, states have to implement their own plans. This is part of the Clean Air Act from the 1970s. The states adopt state implementation plans and 23 upwind states of the where the ozone pollution is worse, the eastern and northeastern states, 23 upwind states adopted their own state implementation plans. So far, so good. That was the process that Congress set up in 1973 or so when it adopted the Clean What, when it passed the Clean Air Act, and when President Nixon signed it. But then the EPA overruled 21 of those state implementation plans, saying they're no good. 
Now, normally in the course of things in the 70s, 80s, 90s, up to the present time, that would mean the states had to start over and do new state implementation plans to meet those standards. But the EPA had wanted none of this federalism, wanted the states completely out of the picture. So the EPA adopted its own ozone regulations that it says now every state has to follow these regulations, all the 23 upwind states. And they cried foul. They sued. They said, no, uh, you unlawfully overturned our state implementation plans. And moreover, further lawsuits over the new EPA rule because the new EPA rule did not follow the Administrative Procedures Act because it did not consider all of the bad things and the costs that would happen from the federal, the new federal rule and the fact that half these states or 21 of these states that didn't have a state implementation plan, about half of those had sued and have it had the denials overturned. So it's a huge mess. And so whatever plan EPA would come up with would apply in some states, but not other states. And it would be meaningless. And the EPA never considered how meaningless it would be. So the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on that last week, and a majority of the court was highly skeptical of the way that the EPA went about trying to adopt its own national regulation without the state's involvement. Well, in fact, Jim, talk a little bit about federalism and the fact that the federal government is supposed to have enumerated powers and not go beyond them. Now, I understand the argument that if you've got pollution, Pollution can apply in rivers, which go past states, through states, or, you know, on state borders. You've got wind and air. That's clearly not going to respect political boundaries. So it may be an appropriate place for the federal government to have a role because, you know, one state could say we're going to have really good pollution controls. And if the state next door doesn't, uh, you know, the, the, the state next door ends up with a lot of your pollution drifting across its boundaries. So I, I'd admit there's a federal role. When the federal government says, here's the requirement, make up your own plan, and the states say, okay, we've got a plan to achieve that. And then the federal government can come in without any involvement of Congress or any of the people that have to answer to the voters saying, no, we're going to reject those. If I understand what's happened, that seems like something the Supreme Court would throw out and say the states have the right to decide how to implement what the EPA is requiring, don't they? Yeah, there's been a process for the last 50 years of what to do when a state implementation plan doesn't conform to what EPA thinks is necessary. There's a process to do this to go back and forth, but the process is not to simply toss out the state plan and adopt a federal plan in its place. I mean, the states would have to ask, why bother? Why bother going through the trouble and expense of adopting our own plans if the EPA is going to throw them out willy-nilly? And this time... They threw out 21 of the 23 plans. Clearly, the states thought they were complying with the ozone rules, and clearly EPA didn't care. Uh, EPA just wants to have its own rule, and that's not the federalism that Congress adopted when it adopted and passed the Clean Air Act 50 years ago. No, I mean, if you want to command and control economy like China, I suppose, you can let Beijing make all the decisions. But I thought the founders very wisely of this, the founders of this country said, we're going to have a federal government. It is a limited role and enumerated powers and everything else is decided by the states. They're taking this and throwing it out. And what's worse is 
It's unelected bureaucrats at the federal level throwing it out, not the U.S. Congress. I mean, if the U.S. Congress were to take up a bill saying, why don't we just put the federal government in charge of everything? You know, we'll put them in charge of air, water, pollution. We'll put them in charge of all banking. We'll put them in charge of everything. Then you wouldn't have any need to have state governments. But I don't know how you'd ever effectively manage a country as big as we are, uh, you know, by having it all run from Washington, D.C. Nor do I think that that would reflect uh, the, the will of the people, which last time I checked, uh, the government gets to govern because we consent to be governed. I don't think many Americans would consent to that. Yeah, absolutely right. The genius of our American federal system is that it is federal, and the states have a very important role to play in rules and regulations. And the federal government can't simply say, well, we think it's important that we regulate this area because we know what's best, because we are unelected bureaucrats and we're not controlled by the voters, and we can come up with our brilliant ivory tower decisions that can govern and improve the life of every American citizen. Well, that's nonsense. Our founders were very much against that. They knew how bureaucracies ran. They knew how the administrative state or the version of it was in old England. And they wanted to make sure that we were not going to fall into the trap that many other countries had fallen into where the king, the executive branch or the king in England, uh, got to make all the rules and regulations. There is a little revolution in England to stop that kind of thing in the 1600s and on into the 1700s. And um, the United States government, when it was formed, it did not want to follow that path and that rule. But that's exactly what EPA is trying to do. I'm talking to Jim Burling from Pacific Legal. Jim, before we run out of time in about the last minute we've got, would you mind uh, telling my audience about this bump stock case? Uh, I own guns. I don't own bump stocks. But tell me about what's happening with that case. Congress in the 1930s banned machine guns. And a machine gun was defined as something if you pull a trigger once, it would keep on firing. Now we have bump stocks. If you pull the trigger, the action of the rifle going back and forth if the person holds it forward keeps it firing. So the question is, are bump stocks the same sort of thing as a machine gun? And another one of these examples, for years and years, nobody thought it was. The Senator Feinstein said, no, bump stocks aren't covered by a machine gun ban. We should have a new ban for bump stocks. But after the shooting in Las Vegas in 2017, uh, the federal government adopted a bump stock ban, and now hundreds of thousands and perhaps millions of people are owning illegal bump stocks, and the courts have been striking these things down. And the question before the court is, is a bump stock, is a gun, a semi-automatic gun with a bump stock, the equivalent of a machine gun? This is not a Second Amendment case. It's a case dealing with interpretation of statute. And again, how far can the federal government go in interpreting an ambiguous statute? Absolutely right. That's Jim Burling from Pacific Legal. Uh, I want to talk about baby drop-off boxes, and I'll get to your phone calls coming up next. The Lars Larson Show. Kids.
You can't fix stupid. Stupid is forever. But you surely can vote them out. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this Wednesday. In a moment, I want to get to the question of, is it sometimes a good idea for a mom of a brand new baby to abandon that baby in a drop box? I'll tell you what's meant by that if you haven't heard about the idea already. Because there's a question. Are these a gimmick or do they actually do some good? And do they save lives? We'll get to that in just a moment. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Greg's not a naysayer, but we do mention that naysayers go to the head of the line. Hey, Greg, thanks for the call from the great Commonwealth of Virginia. What's on your mind? Well, I'm very, very distraught and upset about this young woman who died in Georgia jogging. Lake and, and I think Riley. the blood is on present. Huh? Lake and Riley. Yeah. Yes. And the blood is on President Biden's hand. And I would like to see Mike Johnson, and I implore him not to give the government one dime until we have full force of military on the border and there's zero crossings. We don't finance anything until the military is on the border and there's zero crossings. And we'll, and then the people that have come here illegally are put uh, rounded up and sent back home that have been here, come here illegally in the last two years, period. The government doesn't get a dime until that happens. And then after that, I want to see us declare the cartels the same as we did the Taliban and take them out. Can I suggest that, uh, look, I, I agree that you should try to reach for the stars when you can, but sometimes when you set the standards too high, you you are self-defeating. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that, Greg. I, I don't mind federal government shutdowns. In fact, I think they do the government some good if they actually were real shutdowns. But most of the government stays in operation during shutdowns. So that's point one, because most of the things that are going to get paid for uh, our military stays in operation. Social Security mm-hmm. checks still get cut. And if you say the federal government gets no money until all these things are accomplished, um, that doesn't work. Because one of the agencies you may be cutting off is Customs and Border Protection and ICE, and they do the work. That's number one. Number two, if you set the standard, it has to be zero border crossings. Donald Trump tried as hard as he could, and he got the lowest level of illegal crossings in modern American history during his four years in office. He never once got to zero, nor would I set the standard at zero. It's a good goal to shoot for, but it ain't going to happen. You know, because because I don't know how you could take a country this big with a 2000 mile open border on our south and a a border uh, three times that long on our north. And we're getting a lot of illegal crosses there, too, and say you're going to completely make those 5000 miles of U.S. border impassable at all by illegals. And until then, you're not going to, you know, fund the we're not going to fund the federal government. I don't see how that happens. The other problem was shutting down the government. Trump did a one of the longest government shutdowns in American history to try to get something done. And I admired him for doing it. But the shutdown was about 30 days. And at that point, the political pressure to to reef to fund the government became so great. And I I wondered at the time, how long is this going to go? And I bet about, you know, 45 days at the most. Turns out I was high. They they stayed shut down. I think it was around 30 days. So don't set the standards so high that you can't meet them. Okay. well, 
Uh, real quick, you know the Senate bill that they had it was a joke. All that was is a bill yes, it was. to process people in. So my point is, is I'm angry about that child's death. I'm angry about the hundred thousand people we lose a year. We lose less than that in a war to fentanyl. Yeah, if, I, and, but I'm I don't with see you. anything happening. I well, don't see let me let me happening. tell you what. Let me tell you what has happened and and what could happen. And I don't know why uh, uh, the uh, Langford uh, from Oklahoma came up with that cockamamie bill. It was dead on arrival. I mean, you looked at that thing and said, we're going to institutionalize 5,000 illegal crossings every day in that bill. That thing, anybody who looked at, even a, even a, a, a political novice would have looked at that and said, that thing's dead. Meantime, the House of Representatives did pass H.R. 2, and it's still sitting there ready to go. And it is a sensible border control bill. And I'm with you. Uh, we're losing people to murder. We're losing people who are raped, who are robbed, who are assaulted. That stuff has got to stop. And there are ways to make it stop right now. I'll tell you what, Greg, one thing you could ask for that is completely doable I've been pointing out for some time that in Joe Biden's first 100 days in office, he signed 94 executive orders that were specifically about the border, meaning they weren't on canceling the Keystone XL pipeline and all the other crazy things he did. You could say, President Biden, when you reverse those executive orders you took that invited this invasion of America, we will pass a budget then. And, and you'd be giving Joe Biden something he can do unilaterally if he chooses to. Because he sits there in the White House, and every time he happens to be out eating an ice cream, reporters will say, what do you want done? And all he'll say is, well, I could close the border, but they have to give me you know billions of dollars to do it. No, they don't. If he were to reverse those 94 executive actions he took in the first 100 days, he could get the border under control. And if he then said to all the sanctuary cities that are protecting illegal aliens, like the one who is currently accused of, of Lake and Riley's murder, uh, like, like Athens, Georgia, the mayor of that town ought to be ashamed of himself. He actually held a press conference. So this is the mayor in the town where uh, uh, Lake and Riley was murdered. And he said, well, we have to respect the rights and we have to address the concerns of all these so-called migrants. No. They're criminally in the United States. No, you don't have to respect them. I don't have to respect any criminal, especially the kind of criminals that rape and murder and steal and ones that are in my country illegally. You do not have to respect their rights. Knock it off. Lock them up. Send them out of the country. Greg, thanks for the call. Let's go to Bill. Hey, Bill, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Sir, help me out when it came to the elections and how Biden had won miraculously <laughs> and how they we cheated. can't go into the court system. Yeah. And we can't go into the court systems to uh, figure out what the hell went wrong um, because we don't have standing because nobody was hurt. Well, how come we can't bring in the idea that the people that are being killed and uh, by fentanyl and by m murderers of illegal aliens, doesn't that cause standing Doesn't no cause well not all not always and bill if you want a legal i'm not a lawyer but i know a little bit about it in, in in some of the cases the suits were thrown out almost none of them were looked at on their merits right they were almost all of them were thrown out on the basis uh, you were right on standing in some cases court said 
you filed this too late. In some cases, they said you filed it too early. In some cases, they said you as an individual or a group don't have standing to bring this lawsuit. And when you say, but bad things have happened because of what happened in the election, the lawyers, I think, would tell you, you have to have a nexus, a connection between what was done. So if I said, uh, hey, my next door neighbor brought a, bought a car for his 16-year-old son, and his son went out and drove down the street and hit somebody and killed them. So that means the, the guy who bought the car for his son is, is guilty. Now, the lawyers would say there's no nexus. There's no he could not have reasonably foreseen when he bought that car that his son would go and kill somebody with it. That's where. And again, uh, don't don't you know, don't look to me for legal advice. But in this case, I agree. The blood of Lake and Riley is on Joe Biden's hands and the other people who've died, including a two year old in Maryland, including a 14 year old girl who was raped by an illegal alien. Joe Biden's got that blood all over his hands. Coming up in just a moment, are we on the verge of giving up steak and pork for crickets and beetles? We're going to talk about that coming up next. You've got the Lars Larson Show. doing things that will drive up the cost of food. Are world leaders planning to force us to eat bugs and lab-grown meat? Uh, I thought we'd talk about that, especially because our friends at the Epic Times, Roman Balmakov and others, host and director of their new documentary called No Farmers, No Food, Will You Eat the Bugs? Well, I've, I've always said no farmers, no food. I love to eat, and no, I'm not eating the bugs. So, Roman Balmakov, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? Hey, Lars, great to be here. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that I'm on the phone with somebody who is an objector to the bug agenda. That's, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm definitely against the bug agenda. And, you know, it's good for laughs and all that. But I really do worry about this. And we even talked about this cultivated meat nonsense yesterday. And I think it is nonsense. And I don't think people realize economics may push Americans, not because we want to, but because our, you know, our elite government masters have decided this is what we will do, that they'll push this agenda on us and we won't get much to say about it. You think I'm overreaching on that one? No, and actually, I think the way you're you're sort of conceptualizing it is exactly what we were uh, able to uncover in our investigation uh, over the past year, which is that the way it, it will likely manifest and actually the way it is sort of beginning to manifest is not like a top-down edict, like you have to eat the bugs, but what it'll look like is that such onerous restrictions uh, in order to, quote-unquote, save the planet will be put on farmers, and so much investment um, and sort of the door opening of of government, you know, dictates and agencies will be given to the the insect industry and the fake meat industry that what will happen maybe in, in let's say, 20 years is that you'll just go to the store and meat is just so expensive because there's such onerous restrictions on the production of it that, you know, you look at the insect patty and it's, let's say, $5 a pound versus the beef patty, which by that point might be $74 a pound. <laughs> and you'll just have to make that decision. You know, that, that's, that's sort of what we're, what we're seeing, that they'll just change the environment, uh, the, the broader economic environment, to get people to comply. See, that's what I'm worried about because, Roman, 
As I said earlier this week, we talked to somebody who's from one of these groups that's pushing the idea. Why don't we just open up as a possibility? And I hate to get in, you know, radio and long, deep, uh, you know, uh, discussions of economics don't necessarily mix that well. But I thought if I go to the store and I, right now I, Tina and I shop together and it's my, that's my wife. Um, if chicken breast is now about four bucks a pound, which is expensive enough. And like you said, if all of a sudden they say, well, there's the cultivated chicken breast and it's only three dollars a pound. You know, because it's been advantaged by government policies and they say, well, we want to get farmers out of actually keeping chickens in cages or beef that's raised with extra grain and, you know, corn to fatten it up. Well, the cultivated beef is, you know, seven dollars a pound, like you said, but real beef from a cow is 10 or 12. Economics will do everything. The elites will still get to eat cow. But farmers will produce less of it and more of the cultivated stuff because economics will drive people and probably institutions. I mean, how long till a fast food joint says, yeah, we can make those chicken breast sandwiches out of real chickens that go cluck, cluck, cluck. Or we can make them out of this cultivated stuff and then we can keep our price point lower than the guys across the street. And uh, economics will do the rest for us. Yeah, I mean, that's the current reality, actually. I mean, if you go to Whole Foods, I don't know which, which stores you shop at. But here in New York City, I mean, you can go to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, and they sell insect uh, chips and uh, insects like in, in bags that are uh, freeze dried. Like it, it's a not it's a specialty item. It's not like a you know it's not in the main main aisle. But if you, if you go over to like you know I think it's like aisle nine in one of the local stores here, like it's available. You can buy it on Amazon too. So I like in terms of the documentary we made and sort of the research that we're. That's I want people ongoing. to watch that, by the way, Roman. I love. I used to make documentaries. I love documentaries. I want them to see your whole program, but give them a taste of what they're going to see. Thank you. And by the way, uh, we got the domain nofarmersnofood.com If anybody wants to check it out, how did you get that up? I got to ask you, how in the world did you get that one? I thought that one would have been gone thirty years ago. Well, how in the world that nobody registered before us? <laughs> that's my bigger question. <laughs> okay. It was just available. It wasn't even that expensive. We're get, we just got lucky, I guess. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, that, the uh, documentary sort of um, tracks our our investigation. We, we started to see these farmer protests springing up um, uh, about a year and a half ago. We just started going to them, speaking with the farmers, going to their homes, going to their farms. And just as we kept digging, we realized that um, even though in each country we visited, it was a different uh, surface level problem that the farmers were fighting as we dug into each one of these problems they all kind of coalesced into the uh into the un and their broader uh, agenda 2030 and yep. as we just kept digging we, we figured out that agenda 2030 at the un level uh i mean and of course you know the wef is sort of the economic arm of the un like you, you see these meetings where they're talking about all these crazy technocratic ideas that you think might someday manifest in the future and most people like they watch those videos on Twitter and they think, well, that, you know, they think to themselves, that's pretty crazy. And then they move on with their lives. But, but like behind the scenes, there are groups that concretely go back to their, um, to their host countries and they really implement this stuff, uh, like concretely. Like there's one organization called ICLEI, I-C-L-E-I. I, I'm aware uh, of it. Yeah. Yeah. So these, these guys, they, they usually have their meetings coinciding with, um, like the UN meetings and the COP meetings, the, uh, the uh, UN's uh, climate change meetings. And then these are the guys, well, these, these are one organization of the guys who go back at, and at the local level, taking their country's um, situation into account, get this stuff implemented. Because every country is different. Every country 
has different laws in the books, and they utilize those laws to get the stuff implemented. Like in the U.S., we have the Waters of the U.S. Act. We have uh, EPA regulations. We have the Endangered Species Act. And so they use those to handcuff farmers. In the Netherlands, they had, um, they had uh, like a designation for, nat- nat- quote, unquote, natural parks. And so they expanded that to include like a huge swath of the country. And if a farmer happened to be next to one of these, nat- quote, unquote, natural parks, which like a lot of them are, they would just have to cut down pr- production between like 10 and 90 percent. Uh, I'm dr- and, and, and uh, so they- hey, Roman, Roman, I just want to squeeze in. Roman Balmakov is with me from Epic Times. Their new documentary is called No Farmers, No Food. Will You Eat the Bugs? And you can look up the unique domain name that they managed to put their hands on. You also, in the last 30 seconds, you cover Sri Lanka. That was a disaster. Is that in the documentary? Oh, it 100% is. Because Sri Lanka is a great example because a lot of the Western countries whose farmers are suffering, we are, you know, I guess, you, for lack of a better word, we're privileged enough that we can actually sustain it. You know, most Western countries waste more food, uh, you know, than, than we have uh, use for. In Sri Lanka, where they're already on thin margins, their farmers are, you know, unfortunately committing suicide. They're having to get their kids out of college because they can't afford it. Like, that was a, a really chilling example of what could potentially be down the pipe if these policies go into effect and the farmers really uh, get taken off their land. Roman, thank you very much. That's Roman Balmakov, who is the host and director of the new documentary, No Farmers, No Food, Will You Eat the Bugs? And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson and Joe, it's a Wednesday, and something very interesting is happening on the eve of Joe Biden's visit to America's southern border. Biden, President Biden, is going to Brownsville, Texas. Donald Trump will simultaneously be going to Eagle Pass, Texas, which is the real place of the problem today. Brownsville used to be, but Governor Greg Abbott got busy, and he decided that he was going to shut down uh, the illegal alien invasion of his state. And he was very effective at it in Brownsville, Texas. So Joe Biden is going to go to where the problem is not, which makes about as much sense as anything that Biden does. But there's something that's happened in the last couple of hours, and it may be a little bit of foreshadowing of what is going to happen tomorrow. I'll uh, credit Fox News, but their headline reads, White House calls for sanctuary cities to cooperate with ICE amid furor over illegal alien, well, they call them illegal immigrant. I don't know what's wrong with Fox, but they're screwed up. White House calls for sanctuary cities to cooperate with ICE amid furor over illegal immigrant crimes. Again, I'd say illegal alien, but here's the crazy thing. That's something that Donald Trump wanted to happen. And he demanded that cities around America that had declared themselves sanctuaries. And all of a sudden, we found out that crimes were happening in those cities. San Francisco comes to mind where illegal aliens were involved in killing Americans. 
And Donald Trump had said, well, I'm going to threaten these cities. I'm going to tell them they're going to lose federal funding for their law enforcement if they don't go along with ICE. And the whole left wing in America exploded. They ran around like their hair was on fire saying, you can't do that. I wonder if they're going to have the same reaction to Joe Biden doing it, because it is the White House doing it, as described in the story that broke late today. The White House is calling for sanctuary cities and jurisdictions. There are entire states that are sanctuary states across the U.S. to cooperate with immigrations and customs enforcement in turning over criminal illegal immigrants, aliens, for deportation, just as there is renewed scrutiny over such policies in the wake of several high-profile crimes committed by illegal aliens who had previously been released by law enforcement. Well, no kidding. That's exactly what conservatives have been demanding for a long, long time. And now all of a sudden the Joe Biden White House has gone from three years ago Joe Biden, in his first 100 days in office, signs 94 executive orders to undo everything Donald Trump had done. And the left and the Democrats had fought like, you know, they'd fought like crazy. They'd fought like that third monkey trying to get on the on Noah's Ark. I mean, they they were fighting hard saying, you can't do this. You can't make the sanctuary cities cooperate with ICE and get rid of these illegal aliens. But do you know what happened? Lakin Riley, 22 years old was murdered while she was out for a jog. And I don't think Joe Biden is getting a flash of conscience. I think he's realizing the political handwriting is on the wall. You know what's happening? That young lady gets murdered and her body, her head, disfigured by the man who murdered her. The man who is accused of that, he has a right to a day in court, but the man who's accused of doing that is an illegal alien. And this one connects right back to Joe. And why can I say that? Joe Biden has blood on his hands, and here's why. Because the illegal alien now standing accused of the murder of Lakin Riley in Georgia, another illegal alien killed a toddler in Maryland, a 14-year-old girl was raped allegedly by another illegal alien. But in the case of the man accused in Lakin Riley's murder, here's the significant fact. He came into the United States and was intercepted by Border Patrol, and they let him go as part of Joe Biden's policies. Now, I know if you're a Democrat, you're going to look for any excuse. You can say, well, illegal immigration, uh, illegal aliens have been a problem, you know, for decades in America. And you're right. But we've never had a president who has created the policies that uh, Joe Biden has done. And I can say that because we've never had a president who has pushed the illegal alien invasion of America to such stratospheric levels. He has hit numbers that America has literally never seen, and it's been a continuous stream of illegal aliens. I've reminded you before that during Barack Obama, his border security guy, Homeland Security guy, Jay Johnson, he said a 1,000 a day would be considered a crisis. Four or 500 people a day would be bad, but a 1,000 was a crisis. We have now hit 10 times that number because of the specific policies of Joe Biden. He has abused the law. He's abused the Constitution. And if you wonder, I mean, a lot of people throw down, well, it's the law. Here's the law I'm talking about. Joe Biden has used what's called parole, humanitarian parole. Now, what that's supposed to be for is if you happen to be, let's say, an illegal alien pregnant and you get across the border, but then you go into labor. The Border Patrol isn't just going to march you back to the line and push you across. 
They take you to a hospital. You deliver your baby. You're given humanitarian parole. If you have an illegal alien who's needed as a witness in a murder case, you give him humanitarian parole. He testifies. And that's that. Let's say you say there's this man. He's from Mexico or Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. And he'd really like to attend the funeral of his wife or his son or his daughter. And you say, let's give him humanitarian parole. He can come in, attend the funeral, and then go home. That's what it's for. Joe Biden has used it as the wide-open border policy to grant humanitarian parole, not on a case-by-case basis as the law envisioned, but instead to simply give it out left and right to every illegal, not everyone, but to hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens who've come into the country. And where is this coming home? It's coming home to some real liberals, like the mayor in the town of Athens, Georgia, which is where they're focused on the murder of Lake and Riley. And Jose Antonio Ibarro, arrested there, native of Venezuela, illegally entered this country two years ago. That's a fact. Released by CBP. Goes to New York City, gets caught by New York City police, a sanctuary city, gets caught. They turn him loose. He goes to Georgia and he's accused of murdering Lake and Riley. And I want you to listen to part of a press conference. The Athens mayor came out, and Mayor Kelly Gertz, and said, well, we're not officially a sanctuary city, but we have to actually, you know, consider the needs of these so-called migrants. Listen to what happened and what his citizens had to say back to him. Well, 2019 was not that long ago. You might remember the dynamic we were living in in the late teens in this country where you had president of the United States speaking in the most vile terms about people who were foreign born. And you had that notion metastasizing in places like Charlottesville. When I was younger, I was a criminal. And you know what I thought about doing? Crossing the border to Mexico to get away from my crimes. Now, this is the way that people in Athens, Georgia, are reacting to their mayor trying to make excuses for illegal aliens, saying that Donald Trump saying when these other countries send illegals here, they do not send their best. I would think the family of Lake and Riley would agree with that in spades. Glad to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Coming up in a moment, what's driving major businesses like Macy's into massive downsizing and even closing their doors? We're going to get to that in just a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I really didn't like seeing the news earlier this week that Macy's, one of the most, uh, I guess, long-standing department stores spread out across the United States of America, was going to be closing 150 stores over the next three years and then expanding some of its other chains like Blue Mercury and Bloomingdale. So I thought we'd get our friend Pete Earl on, who's an economist with the American Institute for Economic research hey pete welcome back 
Hey, Lars, how's everything? Good to be. Not back. too bad. I, I'm I'm not a I'm not in the corner office at Macy's or at yeah. uh, or at Target or any of those other Walgreens. I mean, is there is there a major American chain of stores that is not downsizing and reconfiguring? And why are they doing it? No. So, I mean, you know, Macy's has, has, has pretty, pretty successfully until recently navigated a lot of, of what the other retailers have succumbed to. And I mean, you know, in the last five years alone, we lost, you know, Toys R Us, Bed Bath & Beyond, Lord & Taylor, Jim Burry, a whole bunch of others. And the thing is that, you know, we thought in the early, we meaning most of us, I'm sure you and also uh, many of the listeners, you know, thought in the, early, in, the, in the late 1990s, we thought that Amazon and all those companies were going to take out most of the retailers. It's taken about 25 years, but the fact is it's very hard to compete on a price basis with retailers who have no physical space. They have a tenth of the employees and they have on-demand logistics. But it's even harder when, because they're younger and partially because of inflation, those customers are really ambivalent to brand names and shopping experiences, and they really just want the lowest prices. Plus, they're being crushed by inflation. So that's another factor that's brought this uh, to a head for Macy's. I mean, I have to tell you, personally, Pete, my wife and I both like shopping in local stores when we can, and we mm-hmm. try to make sure we – but but I will tell you, it's frustrating. We go out, say, to buy some clothes for my 8-year-old granddaughter, and we say, well, this is the right color, wrong size, can't find her size, can't find this, can't find that, and we know what the fallback default position is going to be, and we, we, we got to the point where we look at each other and go, online. And and yep. and that's where you you end up going, and and it does seem to be sort of a natural outgrowth of where technology has gone. I mean, even if I go to a hardware store, I'll buy parts for a, something I'm trying to fix, and I'll say, oh, they got everyone except the size I need of screw or whatever it happens to be part for a mower or some other you know piece of machinery, and uh, and I say, but I know I can get online and find it in about two seconds, and it'll be at my front door a day after tomorrow. Yeah, I mean it's very, very difficult to, uh, to 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 compete on the basis that the online firms, you know, basically uh, allow us to allow or allow one another to. And the the thing to remember, I think, is that like, you, you know, I mean, it, it it feels bad, but you know, you could have said the same thing. And I know, again, no. I know you and your listeners, all those, we could have <laughs> said the same thing about buggy whips. We could have said the same thing about horses versus cars. You know, about the trains versus you know overnight uh, air and all that sort of thing. It, it's going to be a painful process. There will be some survivors. I mean. As you said, Macy's is planning on doing a bunch of things to try to turn the ship around. But, I mean, this is part of the inexorable march of progress, and we all benefit. Let me ask you about that, because, Pete, the example I've already used, even though I I know it may sound old enough to have lived in that era, but there had to be a time where if you went to buy household goods or clothes or whatever, you went to the general store. I mean, I'm talking that Mm -hmm. far back. And I don't remember, it wasn't uh, Sears, Roebuck, and JCPenney. They were in the late 1800s. Do I have the time period about right? I think it might have been a little earlier than that, but but the idea of the Sears catalog was like sort of like a mobile internet. You'd pick up this big yeah. thick book. I mean, I remember it in the seventies as a kid. You'd pick up this big thick catalog, and from one end to the other, there'd be clothes, toys. I mean, everything from tents and everything else. I mean, yeah, that's what really sort of put a lot of pressure on and eventually eliminated the general stores. Well, but but it did not eliminate retailing because if somebody had said, right. "Well, heck, if you can sit down," and I, I think of it, I mean, even as a kid, I would order something occasionally from Sears or Jay Z Penny or whatever. Mm-hmm. You write down, you know, write your order out, and then get a check or a money order, and you put it in the envelope, and it goes snail mail, and it gets there in a couple of days, and then it, and then usually it says wait four to six weeks, and eventually you get your stuff. 
I don't know if anybody at the time said, well, this is going to destroy retailers in, in cities. It didn't, though. Will it this time? So I, I, it didn't at that time. And I think that the, the, the technological factor is so embedded in our lives now. And we've become almost conditioned to see these things crunching down. I mean, I think there are actual physical and, and economic or financial limits on how much faster we can make things. I do think that there is a certain type of thing, there are certain numbers of goods that people will only buy in stores. I'm hard-pressed hard to think of one offhand. And also, I think that groups of stores together, you put a store next to a restaurant, you put a store next to, you know, the sports arena, whatever, those are going to get some buyers, some opportunistic buyers. But um, I think that... Um, I think that this is this this might be part of the final act for many of these retailers. I'm talking to Pete Earle, who's an economist with the Americans to Free Economic Research. See, Pete, I always thought that clothing was going to be that. I don't spend a lot of time on clothing. Anybody who looks at me can tell you, you know, I, I, I'm not somebody who's a clothes horse uh, because I just don't care that much. I have friends who love fan, nice suits and all that, and there are young ladies who love this dress or that dress. But I always thought that was going to be a category where people say, no, I need to actually see that piece of clothing and put my hands on it and feel the texture of the cloth and all that. And if I buy something online, it's going to show up and I'm going to say, uh, I really don't like this, or I don't like the way it fits, or I don't like the way it looks, or I thought it was blue and it was actually more like you know some other color. And and but but with clo- clothing seems to be one of the biggest avenues that that uh, internet shopping and Amazon in particular uh, has been invading. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's it's sort of a, a, just another example of how innovation creeps into areas that you you know you and I would say, oh, there's no way that can be ever be made any better. But somebody's out there thinking about it and trying to figure out how to make a buck on it. And so now they can send you clothes and you can try them on. And you can say, well, the, the the shirts fixed, you know, fit, and the pants didn't. And the, you know, I'm I'm like you. I'm just going to buy pretty much whatever's out there. I'm not a fancy dresser, but I mean, for people who are, they've made it that much more convenient. Really, the only barrier to doing it now is how frequently you want to return turn to the post office or get something picked up at your house if something doesn't fit. But they made it a lot easier. I kind of wonder if it's also going to do this. People will become kind of wedded to, oh, I want to buy this kind of jeans. I know them. They fit right. They look right. These are the ones I want. Will people become more brand centric in that they, if they're going to buy online and they can't really see it or look at it or touch it, but they can say, I know that one. So I'm going to buy from that line. And then you see sort of all the all the and it's a wonderful spread of variety that Americans have access to. You walk into a grocery store and you can buy ten different kinds of vanilla or ten different kinds of salt or ten, you know fifteen kinds of something else. Is that going to start to narrow down? I don't think so. I mean, one of the benefits of of, of the online uh, experience is that you can have a tremendous variety of goods, and those goods can you can have a picture of them there. But the retailer doesn't necessarily have to have them, and it's made this just-in-time sort of on-demand inventory popular. So, no, to the extent that these things can be warehoused in very small amounts and called up, you know, in a very short amount of time when orders come in, no, I mean, I think variety of anything will increase. Well, when I walk into a place like a Best Buy and I say, I look at TVs and I go, well, this one's great. It's got all the things I need, but I need 45 inches, not 40, or I need, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and you say, I know I can't. They, they're not stocking. It'll force those retailers because carrying inventory is expensive. 
And if yes, you say, you oh, you have the no inventory uh, Internet provider who doesn't actually have to have the inventory, it just gets shipped straight from the uh, warehouse uh, from the guys who actually make it, then then that's going to that's going to be a battle because people are going to say, I want the I want the variety. So I want to be able to pick all those criteria online. I can do that in a physical store. I'm often disappointed. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest gripes you hear from uh, brick-and-mortar retailers these days are all these people come out and nobody goes out selling because what they do is they go to the store, they see what they want, and then they say, okay, take a picture of it with your cell phone, go home, order it on Amazon. Yeah, and in fact, you know, they've I mean, even kind of cut their own throats and that you can go in, look for the barcode or the QR code, scan that, and then you can go back and say, hey, Amazon, who will give me the fastest delivery and the cheapest price on this QR code? Oh, hey, look at that. I just beat Best Buy by 50 bucks. And that is not going to work out well in the long term. Pete, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for the work you do at the American Institute for Economic Research. Have a good night, Lars. Good night. And, and you as well, sir. Back in a moment, I want to get to your phone calls and emails. And I want to ask you about this. How do you feel about your money going to China? The American government putting eight-tenths of a billion dollars into a battery plant supposedly to strengthen American industry, except China is one of the co-owners of that plant. I'll tell you the story in a moment. And your calls at 866-A-Larson-Show. All men and the people who love them. Senator John Kennedy on the Washington establishment. The Washington establishment is working harder than an ugly stripper to cover up whatever happened. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I, I guess one of the most stunning things that I've learned in the last hour, if you want to know what it is, the White House is now demanding that sanctuary cities in America, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, uh, go along with ICE and cooperate with ICE in reporting illegal aliens to Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, which is the interior enforcement arm. Uh, a CBP guards the borders. ICE board, uh, guards everything from 100 miles inside the border to the rest, to the, to the middle of the country. And, uh, and all, you know, for decades now, I happen to live in a sanctuary state. Washington State, Oregon is a sanctuary state. Seattle is a sanctuary city. Portland is a sanctuary city. And you say, and so is New York, and so is Chicago, and all the rest of that. And uh, and you say, well, how does that work out? Well, it means that when the police pull somebody over, and they are an illegal alien, let's say they're arrested, taken into custody, it becomes clear that they are illegally in the country. And I can tell you how they end up finding that out. It's nothing secret, but I'll tell you how it works. So you would say, well, if the police arrest somebody who's illegally in the United States, of course they call up Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, to which I would tell you, of course they do not in sanctuary states. And if you want to know how formalized this is, about three years ago, there was a state trooper in the state where I live, state of Washington. They haven't changed the name yet, even though it is connected to that old slaveholder, you know, George Washington. I... I love George Washington. I think he was a great man and, and America's greatest president. But there are liberals out there who don't like him at all. But what happens? They pull a guy over. 
He's in the country illegally. He's an illegal alien. And the state trooper decides, you know, ICE needs to know about this guy. So he lets somebody know, I think through back channels, he ends up getting disciplined by his bosses. How dare you report this criminal illegal alien to the federal agency that deals with illegal aliens? If you think this is just something, you know, sort of subtle or something that, well, they just kind of don't reach out and make any effort to report illegals, that's not the way it works, folks. The way it works in sanctuary cities like New York City is that uh, uh, they say we're not going to cooperate with ICE at all, except now. And a few hours ago, the White House announced that it wants sanctuary cities to start cooperating with ICE. I'm going to tell you something. That is a 180 turn for Joe Biden. It's just a complete reversal of where Biden stood before. And conservatives in America have been complaining about sanctuary cities for so long, going all the way back, I mean, a couple of decades, where there would be a murder in a place like San Francisco. One case comes to mind. And a young lady is standing there with her father on Fisherman's Wharf. And an illegal alien who was nearby, who later concocted some cockamamie story about how he accidentally found a loaded gun somewhere and he was just examining it when it went off and killed this young lady's dad. And you say, well, hold on. Was he then arrested by the police and turned over to ICE for deportation? He was a multiple times deported illegal alien. Of course, San Francisco didn't do a damn thing about it. In fact, they shelter illegal aliens. I'm going to suggest something to you in the next few days. Watch for this to happen. It appears that the White House has decided that the illegal alien invasion, while the Democrat Party looked at this as this is our salvation, this is 10 million undocumented Democrats, we're going to use them in the election. Except I wonder if they're going to get to the election. Because the fever pitch in this country, with the death of Lake and Riley, the murder of murder and mutilation of Lake and Riley in Athens, Georgia, this has gotten so ugly that finally even the Democrats are taking notice. And Joe Biden, I'm sure, is well aware that on the border he is at a 26 percent approval rating with Americans of all parties, 26 percent. And tomorrow. He's going to go down, well, somewhere near the border, Brownsville, Texas, where the problem isn't anymore. And now the White House is saying, hey, we want you to work with ICE. I want to remind you of something. Donald Trump wanted this to happen. And as a president, you don't have that much authority to make those things happen. I know that there are people who see the presidency as the ultimate power in America. That is not the way the founders of this country designed the office. They designed it, frankly, to be a weak office because the president on his own cannot spend one thin dime of the taxpayers money without congress saying yes if he takes any action that somebody disagrees with they can haul him into court and he can be overridden that happened to joe biden a couple of times in major ways and a bunch of times in minor ways remember when joe biden was going to use osha the occupational safety and health administration to force people to get the jab and then the supreme court shot it down And then there was Joe Biden who wanted to pay off $400 billion, four-tenths of a trillion dollars of deadbeat student loans. And the court shot him down. So they designed the presidency to be relatively weak. Yes, he's the commander-in-chief. Yes, he's the top 
chief executive of the United States. He runs the executive branch of government. But even those agencies can only do what the Congress has authorized them to do. But what Donald Trump wanted to do, he wanted to tell all these sanctuary cities and sanctuary states and sanctuary counties, and there are some of all three scattered around this country, most of them you can spot if you look at a map and pick the biggest cities that are predominantly blue cities, dominated by Democrats. They're all, I don't know of a single exception to that rule. Minneapolis, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Illinois, Chicago, New York, except look how that sanctuary status is working out about now. They're saying, well, this this is a problem. I mean, we uh, we, we don't know what to do at this point. We're, we're overrun with illegal aliens. I mean, all these cities that would have told you with great confidence, you know, everybody is welcome here. Why, we're glad to have anybody who wants to come to our city. All are welcome here without regard to your immigration status. Guess what? That has changed big time. And now these big cities are saying, we got a problem here. In fact, just late today, a story broke that Mayor Eric Adams of New York City is now saying he is revising New York's sanctuary laws. He says he was going to say when he campaigned for mayor, he used to be a cop, and shame on him for his background because I, wa- I, I kind of look forward to a former cop becoming mayor of a city that really strongly needs some strong law enforcement. But he campaigned on a platform in which he said he was going to make sure that the city's sanctuary for protect protection for illegal aliens continued. Well, guess what he's doing now? He is now saying that New York City's sanctuary city law needs to be changed. So either the White House read the writing on the wall that was coming out of New York and Chicago and Philly and D.C. and all the other big cities that are flooded with these illegal aliens that are being bankrupted by illegal aliens. Either Joe Biden read the writing on the wall or or the White House said, we've got a new direction we want to take. And I want to point it out to you because as a voter, if you say, and I know there are people who listen to this show, they email me and they say, you know, I think Joe Biden's been a great president. Really? How about on the border where we're being invaded? Oh, no. We're not being invaded. This is just the same old problem that Donald Trump had. It's just changed a little bit. No, it hasn't. And Joe Biden took a decidedly pro-open borders position. We'd always accused him during the campaign of being open borders Joe. And folks said to me, uh, you know, they call the show or they email and they'd say, look, he's not for open borders. He's not for uncontrolled invasion of America by illegals. And now you've seen what's happened. 10 million in the last three years, an extraordinary level of illegal entry to this country. And now the White House is doing a 180. You know, that big old Biden administration turning around and going the other direction. And Joe Biden is on the border tomorrow, and I hope he he gets some tough questions. He has small town politics with big town opinions. This is the Lars Larson Show. Try that in a small town. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday on the eve of Joe Biden's visit to the border tomorrow. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the program Scott Shepard, who's a fellow at the National Center for Public Policy Research and a director of the Free Enterprise Project. Scott, I hope life is treating you well. Oh, life's always good, Lars. How about you? I'm doing well, but I'm kind of confused about something. I wanted to talk to you about companies like Apple that keep talking all the usual DEI talk. Um, yeah. And there are two problems with that. One, I think, is Boeing airplanes falling out of the sky and trying to explain why the company, <laughs> which which calls its own effort global diversity. And I say, oh, it works real well as long as you keep the airplane's wings on. Um and and then, you know, diversity efforts like Katenji Brown-Jackson, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, and a few others that, that have not exactly been uh, things to write home about. But if this is, and I think you've suggested this, that this is just flat-out and out discrimination against people or in favor of people based on characteristics that it's illegal to discriminate on, I'm amazed it's gone on this long without a whole bunch of people filing, you know, complaints uh, and saying my, my federal, legal, or constitutional rights are being violated, fix this. How is it that it's gone on this long? Well, that, that's a fairly good question. I think that part of the explanation <clears throat> is that in these companies, there's such a an echo chamber and a reverb problem that um, it didn't occur to companies that, yeah, this is super illegal, or they thought they were going to get away with it. And inside the companies, the people who would complain, and we're in touch with some of these, uh, guys who, and it's usually guys, and it's usually white guys, and it's usually straight white guys who are discriminated against these days by these corporations, who know that they're being passed over, who have hiring authority and know that there a lot of pressure is on them to uh, take race, sex, and orientation illegally into account, but they've gotten as far as they've gotten, and they know that to leave and try to get hired as a straight white guy somewhere else would be debilitating, would, might might be impossible, and so they feel like they're stuck. And and on top of that, Scott, I guess within a given business, if you decide I'm going to file an official DER, you know, EEOC complaint against Apple you're not only going to be out of a job at Apple, but everybody else in the tech, tech universe who are kind of on the same side of the political aisle are going to say, and we're not touching you either. That's right. I mean, look at look at Silicon Valley. Look at all the too-big-to-fail banks. I mean, they, they've all been singing from the same hymn book for, for quite a while. And part of that is because, as we've talked about before, Larry Fink at BlackRock and the other people who are stealing the power of other people's money in order to do their personal policy preferences, have gone out to these companies and said, you will do this. We don't care about the law. You're going to adopt equity. And, you know, of all places, Starbucks alleged in court filing. So presumably they weren't lying to, well, uh, presumably they weren't lying to the court about this, uh, said, you know, we had to, uh, we had to do these race conscious, sex conscious and orientation conscious uh, discriminatory programs because Larry Fink made us. Wow. So, yeah. so I mean, it, it, it almost sounds like using the excuse of, yeah, we started using slaves in our Chinese lab, in our Chinese factories because we had to. Our stockholders told us we had to. I don't think that excuse works very well, does it? No. No, I think it was a bad idea to begin with. And I think that what's going to happen 
is uh, first that that there's going to be, and there already is in part, state level um, investigation and pro- prosecution because states have civil rights laws as well, yep. and those are being violated. So the brave and sensible states are already responding. Will respond more significantly, and that'll start to crack the crack the barriers. We <clears throat> we are looking for good suits uh, ourselves for uh, shareholder derivative suits. And I know that others are starting to think that way. Um, and then once the the edifice starts crumbling, once some of these companies uh, get sued a half dozen times with $25 million uh, verdicts, that's the last verdict that uh, that Starbucks uh, lost, uh, then, then plans will change at the companies. But also, I expect some, some states or maybe the next sensible administration in Washington to start looking into, you know, Larry Fink's been bragging for years. We've been forcing behaviors on corporations with other people's money, and one of those is equity. Well, equity is illegal discrimination, so he's yep. admitted to what's a federal felony and has been since, I mean, it's called the Ku Klux Klan Act. Good job, Larry. And so maybe there'll be some criminal prosecutions. Hey, let me ask you about something else, because this is what we had planned to talk about. Scott Shepard is with me from the National Center for Public Policy Research. So you're protected from discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, uh, these days, sexuality and a bunch of other stuff like that. You're not protected on your viewpoint or your ideology other than religious ideology. And you pointed out that shareholders at Apple's annual shareholder meeting said, let's have a vote on a plan to have viewpoint protection. And, uh, I mean, I've told my producers, I I could legally say, I can't ask you what color are you, how old are you, things like that. I can't discriminate on their basis, and I shouldn't. But I could say, I want you all to be conservatives. You tell me you're a conservative, and I could make that a criteria. I don't, but... uh, but, but, but I figure there's a bunch of self-selection anyway. Nobody's going to work for me unless they're conser- somewhat <laughs> yeah. conservative anyway, because the liberals hate me. In fact, we've had some real crash and burns where we invite somebody in for an interview and they say, uh, yeah, and then they call us up and say, I'm going to pass on the opportunity, even when we offer the job. So there you go. Should there be viewpoint discrimination? And is that even possible? That there that there is viewpoint discrimination or, or that, that you can be... make it effectively work where you say, I went into an interview for a job and I mentioned I was voting for Trump own guns and I don't know, pick something else that's not, notoriously conservative. And I believe they didn't hire me uh, in the same way that a person of color would say they didn't hire me because they don't hire black people. Uh, if you said uh, yeah. they didn't hire me because they don't like conservatives and they said as much and I was discriminated. Could you actually make something like that work? Sure. Uh, it uh, it would follow along largely what you're talking about, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be as easy to categorize as race. That's fairly hard. To, uh, that's very fairly easy to decide. Sex was until two years ago, um, and and still is among same people. This would be uh, there would be more middle ground where you just throw up your hands and say, "Well, we can't tell." But the the tools by which uh, discrimination is smelled out in other categories applies here. If you've nice. got Apple and the the employee uh, uh, spectrum at Apple is 4% conservative, 
96% lunatic left, then you have you've got a pretty good idea that they're just You have de facto discrimination, right? I mean, that's, that's yeah. how they do race uh, cases. So they can say, if you don't have enough conservatives, you're going to have to have a special program to bring them in. That's Scott Shepard. Scott, thanks very much. you got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Six years. I have been the target of the unrelenting Trump attack machine shouting, where's Hunter? Well, here's my answer. I am here. Yep, that's Hunter Biden standing there on Capitol Hill today, and he's playing the victim. I have been the victim. They've been attacking me. They've been trying to hunt me down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what did he do? He showed up to testify before the U.S. Congress. You'll remember he was subpoenaed to testify, and then he refused to actually comply with the subpoena. So what do we know now? We know that Hunter Biden testified today. He testified behind closed doors, and apparently it was not a recorded interview. Uh, he didn't talk to reporters as he arrived. That was about 10 o'clock Eastern time today. But he did talk to them on his way out. But in his opening statement, this is what I find absolutely outrageous, because I think Hunter Biden is as guilty as sin, and I'll explain why. But he said, I'm here today to provide the committee with one uncontestable fact that should end the false premise of this inquiry. I did not involve my father in my business. Now, that was in his opening statement. Let me tell you why I think that's a bald-faced lie. He's trying to brazen his way past this because he has no other place to go. He can't admit that Joe Biden was directly involved and, in fact, was instrumental in business dealings that earned the Biden crime family, uh, at least so far, a documented $24 million over the last number of years, stretching right back to the time when Joe Biden was vice president and after he was vice president and before he became president of the United States. But before I get into the details... Let me invite you to the conversation. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day. And you can call 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. If you disagree with me and you think, well, Hunter Biden's doing nothing but being a good lawyer, as he claimed to be today, and a good businessman, as he claimed to be today, if you actually believe this claptrap, that Hunter Biden says his dad played no role in his business whatsoever. I don't think you've been paying attention, but if you're the naysayer who wants to say it, we will invite you to stand at the front of the line, and I'll give you all the time you need to explain why you think he's actually telling the truth. 866-439-5277. Naysayers go first. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. We put up a brand-new question every day at Lars Larson Show, and you can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. Here's why I find this so absolutely laughably untrue. 
And it's not a laughing matter. If this man testifies before the Congress, if he's under oath, and he says Joe Biden had no involvement, he said was never involved in his business, that's perjury. And as far as I'm concerned, perjury by Hunter Biden, perjury by Joe Biden, as we used to say back in the Bill Clinton days, perjury is perjury. And you need to be punished for it. So why would I say that Joe Biden has been involved in the business dealings of Hunter Biden? Because originally, Joe Biden would tell reporters as he was running for president, he would say, I never even talked to my son about business. Except now we have emails, we have photographs, we have phone conversations, text messages, and the like. And Joe Biden, for the longest time I've told you this, It was absolutely inconceivable that, for example, on one trip, Joe Biden, then vice president, gets on Air Force Two with Hunter Biden, and they fly all the way to China. And that apparently, according to both Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, they didn't talk about his son's business dealings. They discussed the weather and sports and time at the beach or whatever, something other than what Hunter Biden was doing. And then on one of those trips, when Hunter Biden went with his then-Vice President dad to China, they show up on Air Force Two. The Chinese care a lot about protocol. They care a lot about how you appear. So the man you're about to do business with in the case of CEFC, which was a gigantic Chinese energy company that wanted to do business in the United States, and they wanted to do business, and they need clearances that Hunter Biden's dad could arrange. And uh, CEFC is not around for the most part now. But Hunter Biden got paid millions and millions of dollars. Now, do you think it's because of his charming personality? Do you think it's because of his deep knowledge of prostitutes, prices, both, and availability? Do you think it's because the Chinese wanted to know about how to snort cocaine or smoke drugs? They wanted that connection because they wanted to be able to get to people in high places in America. And now... There's evidence, eyewitness testimony, photographs and emails that show that Joe Biden met with his son and his son's business associates from two different Chinese companies, that he was involved in meeting with people in business deals from Mexico, Kazakhstan, Russia, Ukraine and all the rest. Now, Hunter Biden is going to say, no, it didn't happen at all. My dad was never involved. I don't find that very believable. But then Hunter Biden comes out and says, well, the only reason that I'm subject to all this negative attention is because of MAGA, the Make America Great Again cause of President Donald Trump. Take a listen to what he said just a few hours ago. For six years, MAGA Republicans, including members of the House committees who are in a closed door session right now, have impugned my character, invaded my privacy, attacked my wife my children, my family, and my friends. They ridiculed my struggle with addiction. Now, hold on. They've impugned his character? The character of a guy who was involved in sleazy business deals in Ukraine. I mean, anybody who describes what Hunter Biden's relationship was with the Ukrainian natural gas company Burisma understands the fix was in and that Hunter Biden wasn't worth a dime to Burisma without his vice president, Daddy. And 
then you have to wonder, well, how much did they pay him to sit on a board of directors for a Ukrainian natural gas company? And the answer is roughly a million dollars a year, about $83,000 every month. And you say, did Hunter Biden have deep knowledge of the natural gas industry? Nope. Did he have deep knowledge of his of uh, as a lawyer of, say, energy law? Nope. Didn't have that either. Did what did he even know how to speak the language in Ukraine? The answer is no to all of that. But the bottom line is Hunter Biden's going to say that Joe was not involved. Listen to this. Let me state as clearly as I can. My father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad. Nor abroad. Now, that's the position he's going to take. But I'd point out to you, he doesn't have any room to take any other position. The minute he admits that he was selling favors out of the office of the vice president of the United States, that's trouble. That's criminal charges. The minute he admits that, his dad, Joe Biden, is politically extinct. So he's got to maintain this lie, and he'll do it even if he has to commit perjury before the United States Congress. Your calls are welcome, naysayers too, at 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Lots of folks worry about their firearms, but Lars doesn't have to worry about Biden taking his guns. He stores them upstairs. This is the Lars Larson Show. Big iron on his Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Questions there every day at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. You know, I, I'm helping to teach my granddaughter Payson to read. And I told her I get endless enjoyment of, of reading. Reading is one of my favorite activities from the time I was a kid uh, to present. Uh, and in fact, I end up reading a lot because of work, but I also read for fun. Uh, I like to read both fiction and nonfiction for fun. And I'm really concerned that America ought to be in a spot to really make sure that every single person in this country is able to read well. And we seem to be failing at that despite tens of billions of dollars that we sink into public education. So I wanted to talk to Jonathan Butcher, who is the Will Skillman Senior Research Fellow in Education Policy at Heritage. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be with you. Do we have a a literacy crisis in this country, and is there a way to describe how bad it is and whether it's getting worse? Well, I think the student results after the pandemic should have everybody concerned, right? Reading scores among fourth graders are at their lowest levels going back to the 1990s. Okay, so you've lost probably a generation or more coming out of the COVID pandemic. And so uh, what that means, though, 
is that when you look at individuals who are incarcerated, for example, they have high rates of illiteracy. So if we are not teaching young people to read, we are setting them up for a future where they are more likely to be involved in criminal activity, and there are high rates of individuals who can't read who find themselves in prison or in jail. And a uh, recent Senate report pointed this out, and I think it's something that really should be on parents' minds. So what is it we need to do differently, and why are the very well-funded? I always tell my audience that America funds its K-12 public schools better than every other country on the planet, and I believe that's still true. If it's not, please feel free to correct it. But if we fund these efforts very, very well, but we produce bad results, what's going wrong? Yeah, we're consistently in the top two countries in the world in terms of what we spend per child. Uh, but nevertheless, the K-12 assigned school system spends far more per child than the private school system does. So, you know, to say that, um, you know, there's, there are just, there are not efficiencies, right, in the assigned school system. Um, so there are some states, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, who have taken some steps in recent years uh, from over the last 20 years to um, improve transparency and accountability in reading instruction. So, for example, in Florida and uh, Mississippi, if you're if a student is not proficient by the end of third grade, they can't progress to fourth grade, right? So that's a great way legislatively to create more accountability. Uh, additionally, um, in recent years, I'd say last five to seven years, there's been more attention on what is known as the science of reading, which is really just a fancy way of saying uh, evidence-backed instruction, and that really points to font. I think we found, especially uh, recently, that the sort of cueing methods, or what is known as the whole word method, that's been pushed by the Teachers College at Columbia, uh, has failed. Uh, it has failed for a long time. And, and that cueing method, at one time, had the strong support of individuals like um, you know, President Clinton and uh, his, uh, his, his cabinet administration, you know, his Department of Education. So, you know, there was a period when the queuing method had a lot of people, you know, vouching for it. But I think um, there's a great, uh, some great research uh, and, and exposés by some media in recent years that have shown that that doesn't work. So Mississippi is one of the states that, especially over the last 20 years, has moved away from the queuing method, moved more towards what is known as the science of reading, phonics, and uh, they, they call it the Mississippi miracle because of how sharply reading scores have improved. Yeah, in fact, they've come from near the bottom of the pile uh, up quite a distance, and they say they're not done. I talked to I think, the governor of Mississippi about a year and a half ago, and he said, look, this isn't hard to do. Uh, he said we have what we call, they call it the third grade gate. And it says if, if you get to the end of third grade and you are not ready for fourth grade work, you're held back. And yet, Jonathan, I can remember when they used to sometimes advance a kid one grade or hold a kid back one grade. Nobody seems to be doing that anymore, and I've never understood why the education system says we have to just push kids through whether they're ready for the next grade or not. Is there any great chance that we might reverse that now and say if you're not ready for fourth grade, you're going to stay in, in third grade? He also pointed out, and this is Tate Reeves, governor of Mississippi, he said we spend some money on, on uh, uh, tutoring. 
uh, for the kids that didn't make the third grade gate. And I said, well, how much are you spending? I think he told me they were spending 15 million bucks a year, which sounds like a rounding error in most state budgets. It's not a lot of money. And I said, what kind of results are you getting? He said, we get most of the kids ready for fourth grade. But but if, they, if they're not, they're held back. Yeah, and for a while, Florida had a school choice program, a scholarship program to help pay for reading uh, assistance. That program has since been rolled into some of their other um, uh, school choice programs, I believe. So, I mean, look, the states like Iowa, Florida, Arizona, Oklahoma, that in, you know, in recent years have created these very expansive school choice options where parents can use an account-style system to choose how and where their children learn, I mean, that can be focused on finding a tutor for a child to catch up in reading. Uh, it, can, it, it can, you know, help parents um, who already recognize where their students are falling behind. It can help them um, give their students the tools to catch up. And I think that's one of the benefits that, of course, school choice brings. So this, this whole issue here of uh, helping students learn to read overlaps with school choice. It overlaps with the justice system. Um, it, you know, it overlaps with the success in um, not just education, but in the workforce. So, you know, it's, this, is, this is a major, a major issue. And the, the fact that we have such a high percentage of individuals who are incarcerated who can't read, you know, we're talking 70 percent or more, 73 percent uh, are what some numbers, some figures have it. I mean, that's, that's a big deal, right? I mean, that's yeah. got to help us understand that if we can give kids the ability to be successful in school, it makes them less likely that they're going to find themselves having to resort to crime. Okay, but Jonathan, I want to go back to that question of will the education establishment admit that simply pushing kids forward when they're not ready is wrong and change that, or are they just simply never going back to a system that would hold you back if you're not ready for the next grade? Yeah, I think, I don't know if the, you know, the education establishment, such as teachers unions, I don't know if they're going to get behind it, but um, I can tell you that um, there are, you know, certainly those uh, in the philanthropic world, like in Mississippi, they had a, a big philanthropist who, who helped them um, sort of jumpstart their reading turnaround. Um, and then, of course, in the school choice world, um, we keep a close eye on student success and, and making sure parents have options. And, and these days, you know, it's the teachers' unions can't, they can't stop the momentum that the school choice world has brought to education policy. So, um, you know, I think, I think it, the, the future is bright, although it's going to take, um, it's going to take us not forgetting how important reading instruction really is. I guess I would think that from the teachers' union's point of view, they know that even with broad school choice, not every parent is going to pull a kid out of public school. But if they, if the teacher said, oh, you mean we might be teaching some kids for 13 years or 14 years instead of 12? I would think the unions would be all over that, seeing lots and lots of extra money and lots and lots of extra hours in the classroom. Jonathan, thanks very much. That's Jonathan Butcher. He's a senior research fellow in education policy at the Heritage Foundation. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And in fact, one of these days we might actually put up as our poll on X. It's not the question today. But we might say, if kids are not ready for the fourth grade, should we hold them back at third grade? Should the rest of America adopt a third grade gate the way Mississippi and other states have done? Or should you just shove them through like uh, meat through a sausage grinder and push them out the other end, whether they actually know how to read or not? 
Back in a moment. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. President of the United States always knew where to put the blame. You have blamed mistakes of the past, and you blame the Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. This is the Lars Larson Show. Larson Show, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I want to jump right into this interview. Usually I give you a few of my comments first, but I love the time I get when I get it with Peter Schweitzer, who's a political commentator, and he's the guy who has managed to document so much of the political corruption in American politics, including the Clintons right up to the Bidens. And his latest book is called Blood Money, Why the Powerful Turn a Blind Eye While China Kills America. Peter, good to have you back. Great to be with you, Lars. Thanks for having me. I do want to talk about Abby Lowell in a moment, this Hunter Biden lawyer, who's apparently also lawyer to Chinese criminal gangs that may be involved in some international drug trade. But I want to start first with Hunter Biden was up on Capitol Hill today, and he says in no uncertain terms and on camera and everything else, my father had absolutely no involvement whatsoever in my business dealings in China, Russia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, etc. And I just wonder... You know more about this than just about anybody else that I know as a reporter. What do we say to that? Uh, well, look at the track record. Uh, we started exposing this in 2018, and they've lied every single time. Uh, Hunter Biden's first response in 2018 was, there were no China deals. There are no China deals. Uh, then he said, you know, my father had no knowledge of these deals. Then when it became apparent that his father did have knowledge of the deals, the argument shifted to my father never met with my business partners. Uh, then that was shown not to be true. So I don't give a lot of credence to anything that Hunter Biden says. Uh, all you have to do is look at his track record. And you, all you have to do is look at the receipts. Here's the bottom line, Lars. In the case of China, you could say similar things from Russia and Ukraine. In the case of China, they sent tens of millions of dollars to the Biden family over the course of several years. There is no discernible service, professional business service, the Bidens ever provided for that money. So are we going to believe that they just kept sending money as an act of charity, that they wanted or expected nothing in return, that they, they got no access, they got no – it's ludicrous on the face of it. Um, and the fact that they are now trotting out Hunter Biden as the one who's going to declare what happened in this relationship just shows how desperate they've become in trying to cover this up. I guess in some ways I understand a lot of people object that the initial interviews are behind closed doors. In many cases, they're not recorded, but I don't have a problem with that. And to me, it's like a lawyer deposing somebody. You might want to depose a witness for 10 hours and then put them on the stand yeah. in front of witnesses to actually hear five minutes of what you discovered in that deposition. I think I, I hope Republicans will be up to that task. I'd love to know whether or not you you share that hope. I think so. Yeah. Look, here's the thing. If you have a public hearing uh, with a congressional committee, it's one side gets five minutes, another side gets five minutes. And of course, a lot of those congressmen don't ask questions. They just speechify. The other problem, though, is with that format is 
if you are sort of being pressured and you're being asked tough questions, all you need to do is filibuster. All you got to do is get through five minutes. And then the other political side that's probably aligned with you will then be able to pick up the mantle and say something else. In the behind closed doors deposition, it doesn't work that way. Republicans, they get an hour's worth of questioning. You can't filibuster for an hour effectively. Then the other side gets an hour and we will have public hearings, which I think is is good. Um, but the bottom line is this is the way it should be done. This is the way it's always been done. Uh, and again, if Hunter Biden's not hiding anything, I don't understand why they think this is a big deal. Certainly uh, Donald Trump Jr., I think they had nine hours of depositions involving him. I don't, yep. th- I don't think it's a whole lot to ask Hunter Biden when, unlike Don Jr., you actually, in the case of Hunter Biden, actually have money changing hands. You actually have a hostile power with a relationship with the family. You have all sorts of elements that you did not have in the Russia uh, collusion case. I'm talking to Peter Schweitzer, who most recently has written Blood Money, While the Powerful Turn a Blind Eye While China Kills America. Before we go to that uh, and talk about the book, but Peter, I want to ask you this. When there was a point, I was a kid when this happened, but there was a point in Watergate where even the Republicans realized this is going nowhere good for all of us. And they went, some of them went to Nixon and they said, this is this is a mess. You're going to need to resign or words that affect. So they never impeached him. There never was a need for the impeachment or the trial. He simply left. Is there a point where Democrats realize that these bold denials from Hunter Biden or even from Joe Biden, which he's made, he said all along. In fact, he said on the debate stage, there were no deals in China. And now you've got pictures and emails and all this other proof. Is there a point where the Democrats say, this is a, sh- a sinking ship, and we want to be in one of the lifeboats and not stay with Captain Biden. Yeah, well, you would think so. Uh, and look, if you look at the opinion polling, uh, the Harvard-Harris poll, the New York Times, ABC News, they've all asked the question, did Joe Biden engage in either illegal or highly unethical actions to advance his family's businesses? In all of those surveys, at least, at least 65% of people surveyed say yes. That's a stunning number. That's a stunning number. That means independents. That means Republicans. The the hardcore that are saying no are hardcore Democrats, and they're going to die on this hill. Um, But let's understand, Lars, what is happening if this behavior is normalized. Let's be clear what this means. What this means if if the Bidens don't suffer any sort of sanction from their political party, any sort of legal sanction or political sanction, Uh, for this behavior. What this means now is future presidents, future secretary of defense, future secretary of state, their adult children can go and solicit money from foreign governments. They can be adversarial governments. It can be Russia. It can be China. It can be whoever you want. It can be Iran. They can accept that money with no legitimate business purpose behind it. And according to the Biden standard, this is acceptable. This is now acceptable behavior. That's what's happening as long as Democrats continue to cling to this. Because trust me, I've studied corruption for decades. If you allow this sort of behavior to happen, it becomes normalized. People on both sides will start doing it because they can see that they get away with it. I'm talking to Peter Schweitzer. Peter, let's go to the premise of the book. Why is it that the powerful people in the United States are happy happy to turn a blind eye as their country gets sold out and down the drain to China, the subject of your book? 
Yeah, well, some of them do it because they're go along to get along. And if you accept what is in the book, and I think the evidence is overwhelming, that China is responsible for the death of millions of Americans, uh, some of it's fentanyl, some of it's COVID, some of it's the violence on our streets. If you accept that premise, you cannot have a normal relationship with this country. You can't say, let's sit down and talk about trade. Um, so some of it's just go along to get along. Other cases, though, there are very, very specific examples of financial entanglements that make it embarrassing to raise this subject uh, on both sides of the aisle. On, on the, for the Democrats, you again have to look at the Bidens, and you realize that the Bidens have one degree of separation from the individuals who set up the fentanyl poison conveyor belt that is killing Americans, 100,000 Americans every year. And that's a bold statement, but it's true. Um, We know that the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico was set up in the fentanyl trade. They became the kings of fentanyl thanks to a Chinese criminal gang called UBG. Uh, And the head of UGB is a gentleman, um, Zhang Anlo, who goes by the name White Wolf. White Wolf had a business partner. That business partner, Yi Yi Ming, sent the Bidens $5 million. Nothing in return, no services rendered. So the question is, does Joe Biden really want to have a conversation about China involvement in the fentanyl trade? Does he really want to address the issue? Does he want to address the fact that there are 2,000 Chinese nationals in Mexico involved in fentanyl? No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. That's Peter Schweitzer. You can read the whole story at Blood Money. Why the powerful turn a blind eye while China kills America. Peter, it is always a pleasure. You're welcome back on the show anytime. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Nixon was wrong about a lot of things, but he's right about this. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. What say you, Joe Biden? This is the Lars Larson Show. As president, public safety, public safety and crime reduction is a top priority for my administration and for me. And has been for a long time back when I was chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Yeah, about a thousand years ago. That is the pathetic old man, Joe Biden, who is president of the United States and plans to go to the Mexican border or somewhere relatively near to the Mexican border tomorrow. And it's going to be interesting to see how it sizes up because Joe Biden is facing a real firestorm that's going on right now. He's got Americans who are being murdered, Americans who are being raped, Americans who are the subject of criminal activity by the illegal aliens that he let into the country. And you can't just say, well, it's an illegal who came across the border. In the case of the most notorious of these, uh, Lake and Riley, the young lady, 22 years old, murdered in Georgia, a nursing student who was murdered and then her head disfigured by the man who murdered him, the suspect in this case, an illegal alien who was encountered at the border at the border by Border Patrol under the orders of Joe Biden. And they decided to let him go. And then he was arrested by New York City police and they decided to let him go. And then he shows up in Georgia and he is now accused in the murder of Lake and Raleigh, 22 years old. But beyond that, a two year old child in Maryland killed 
allegedly, by an illegal alien from El Salvador, one of Joe Biden's illegal aliens that he allowed in. And a 14-year-old Louisiana teenager, 14 years old, raped at knife point by another man who is uh, who is an illegal alien, uh, an illegal alien from Honduras. And guess who's to blame? I'm going to put the blame on Joe Biden. Although I'm seeing that the mayor of Athens, Georgia, the town where the Lake and Riley murder happened, He said, well, the perpetrator is the one responsible and the only one responsible. This small town mayor who's in a sanctuary city that his city chose to be sanctuary for illegal aliens. And he still defends this cockamamie idea. He literally says, we have to have respect for these migrants. They are not migrants. They are in the country illegally. They are from a foreign country. And in some cases, they are murdering Adults, they are murdering children, in one case accused of murdering a two-year-old child. And Joe Biden is going to try to explain all of that. I think even the mainstream media has become very, very tired of trying to carry water for this pathetic old man. And, of course, Joe Biden says, well, this isn't my problem. It's because the Republicans on Capitol Hill won't give me more money. Well, you know what, Joe? Donald Trump, president of the United States for four years, brought about one of the lowest levels of illegal alien invasion of this country that America has seen in modern American history. If you don't believe me, go back and look at the numbers. Joe Biden, on the other hand, has literally set the all-time records for the last three years for the highest level of illegal alien invasion of America. And Joe Biden doesn't seem willing to stop it. Neither does his Homeland Security Secretary, Mayorkas, who's now been impeached by the House of Representatives. And even the Democrats don't want to hold a trial, the trial that is required by the Constitution, if you impeach a federal official. And Mayorkas is the first federal official to be impeached since 1876. I mean, you have to have big, good reasons to impeach a federal official. I mean, uh, you'll say, well, presidents have been impeached. Yes. But the president is the president. He's not a federal official under the law. So when the U.S. Senate, controlled by Democrats, says, we don't want to hold a trial, I want to tell you what's going on there. If they could hold a trial and they said, Mayorkas has done nothing wrong, we're going to vote to acquit him the way the Senate acquitted Donald Trump, not once, but twice on impeachment, um, they would do so. If they said, well, we're going to hold a trial and we think Mayorkas has been lying to the Congress, has been violating the law, has been violating the Constitution, except they're not willing to do that. Because then they'd have to admit to Americans, we've allowed the president to open the borders as he promised to do as a candidate. I mean, when when I said Joe Biden is promising to open the borders and people didn't believe me, and around sound bites of candidate Joe Biden saying exactly that that he was going to invite people to come in. In fact, I would expect you to expect me to cite some of those examples. Okay, what happened? Joe Biden has called for mass amnesty for millions of illegals already in the country, and he wants priority put on reunifying them with their families. He wants mass amnesty. He has opposed cracking down on sanctuary cities. He has promised and in some cases actually delivered free or taxpayer funded health care for illegal aliens. He is offering, he wants to promise free taxpayer funded college benefits paid for by you and me for illegal aliens. He wants community college 
paid for by you and me for illegal aliens. These are the things he's actually said. And he delivered. And when he got NGOs, non-governmental organizations, funded with taxpayer money to hand out bus tickets and airline tickets to illegal aliens caught at the border, do you suppose the word did not spread across the entire third world? Hey, America's giving it away. Joe Biden has decided if you manage to get to the border, you're going to get a free ride to a detention center. You're going to be detained for a couple of days. You're going to get three hots and a cot and medical care and a ticket anywhere in America you want to go. Your dream has arrived. And then Joe's going to promise you medical care, community college, a four-year college, health care. He has promised driver's licenses for illegals. He has said that illegal immigration, not the legal kind, the legal kind is good, and I've always agreed with that. He says that illegal aliens have made this country strong. He says illegal immigration is, quote, enriching our communities. He has promised that enforcement agents from INS and ICE will be legally barred from going to schools to try to catch some of those illegal aliens. And he said, well, he respects no borders and cannot be contained by any walls. He vowed that not another foot of Donald Trump's border wall would be built. Well, of course, that got thrown out about a year ago when he said, well, we are going to finish some of the border wall. And now it seems that Joe Biden has decided to change his tune a little bit. In his first 100 days in office, and this is a checkable, verifiable fact, in the first 100 days that Joe Biden sat in that Oval Office disgracing it in a way that no other person has ever disgraced the Oval Office, he signed 94 executive orders in 100 days that took apart all the border security that Donald Trump had put in place. This is not a contest of, of you know, two different individuals. This is the fact that Joe Biden took actions to tear down our American border and to give all of the illegal aliens a tremendous incentive to invade America. Go to America. They'll give you free transportation and food. You can go see a doctor. You can go to a hospital and somebody else is going to pay for it. And now he's got American cities that are actually denying services to their own citizens, including veterans, to hand that resource over to people who aren't even supposed to be here. And in some cases, those aliens are murdering people in America. And you've got the Lars Larson Show. Young person should ever have to worry about